Now, this morning we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and so if you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are going to start Galatians uh, sometime in the next few weeks, and uh, in the in between time, I just finished the series in Proverbs uh, through uh, through chapter nine. And uh, before we start Galatians, uh, I had a, a few goals uh, to get into. And let me just explain why. Um, for today and next week, it may take uh, three weeks, but for at least today and next week, uh, I want us to attempt to answer the question: What is the church, and what does it mean to be a member of a church? And this outline will form the skeleton of our future membership course. And I'll give you a couple reasons why I wanted to go through this particular two to three week uh, topical series before we jump into Galatians. Uh, one, it seemed timely that with the installation of new elders and with um, uh, walking uh, former elders out of that role and, and uh, two new elders coming in, uh, Lord willing, in the next few weeks, it seemed uh, appropriate for us to take a few weeks and to shore up our ecclesiology. Um, we want to make sure we understand what a church is and what does it mean to belong to one. And there's another reason why. Uh, over the last 18 months, as I alluded to in our prayer a minute ago, um, the conditions in our society and our culture have led many people to completely walk away from church. Uh, this is no longer a, um, an option for many families on Sunday morning. Uh, it doesn't mean that everyone who's not here has walked away from Jesus. Uh, many people just shifted churches Many people who were not a part of this church 18 months ago are now in this church, and many people who were in this church 18 months ago now go some, to some other church or don't go to church at all. Uh, many people um, are no longer even walking with Jesus, would not claim personal faith in Christ at all. And as a result of this, it's a timely opportunity for us to understand, to get back to some basics, and to understand what is it we're doing here? Why are we here? What is church? What does it mean? Uh, what does it mean to belong to one? And, uh, and so we want to we answer that question for some of those reasons. Because a misunderstanding of what the church is and does will only lead to frustration uh, on your part and doubt for a new believer or for an old one. If, if you're here and you realize through the course of this message that um, you're here with a completely different understanding of what a church is and what a church does and why we're a part of it, it may lead to some clarity uh, or some correction in your life. You already have some idea of what church is um, from experience but experience can be a misleading teacher. Um, you can experience a doctrine like the doctrine of church and then form an entire behavior around it only to realize later that it's not built on scripture, but on a culture. Uh, experience can be a misleading teacher. Um, for example, it's very likely that the early church did not meet on Sunday morning. It was the first day of the week uh, when Jesus 
was raised from the dead, but it was still in the Roman world, a work day. And so many believers gathered in the evenings and they centered it around a meal, uh, as Paul describes to the Corinthians. They were often coming in from whatever labor position they were in. And so the idea that we should come on church to a church building on a Sunday morning uh, and wear a suit and tie or something like they did maybe in the 80s or the 90s or, or whatever in some church experiences. Um, that sort of a culture is an experience, but it's, there's, not a, there's not a verse that says thou shalt wear you know, your finest or whatever. You shouldn't dress up for God or you should dress up for God. That's not a biblical idea. Um, the Bible describes people standing in honor of the word of God in Ezra and Nehemiah, but in other places, Jesus sat to teach and to read in the synagogues when the scrolls were unrolled. And so we can add extra biblical form and it can become a part of a culture and we can do things that, were, that are descriptive in scripture, not prescriptive. And then for us, that can become law, Right. Well, we have to stand when the word of God is read because the Bible says it. Well, where does it say that? Well, it doesn't say that. It describes times when the word is read and people stand, but it describes plenty of times when the word is read and someone isn't standing. Or prayer, we can get in a mode where we think prayer is, you know, eyes closed, hands bowed, on our knees, by a bed or, or something. But Jesus often would raise his eyes to heaven and lift his hands and pray. So do you see what I'm saying? Oftentimes we can add form and content and culture to something like church that isn't biblical. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that the Bible teaches that. And we can, we can lose sight of what church is. So experience can be misleading. We don't want to start with experience and then go to the Bible. We want to start with the scripture and then make our adjustments and try to adjust scripture to fit our experience or expectation is the wrong way to go about it. You understand? We don't want to start with our experience and then look for the scripture to say, oh, that, that confirms what I already thought about it um, or to find in scripture that it doesn't conform. So we want to take a few weeks to understand what church is and what does it mean to be a, um, what does it mean to be a part of a church? And the truth is, um, anything that you believe precedes your behavior. What you believe about something dictates and directs your actions and your thoughts um, and your behaviors. For example, uh, to use something that's pretty cult culturally relevant right now, if you don't believe in vaccinations or masks or COVID, um, then your belief system dictates behaviors, Right? If you don't believe any of those things, then you're likely going to um, go out and do a certain set of behaviors that line up with what you already believe. But if you believe uh, COVID is serious and the vaccina vaccinations are perfectly fine and that social precautions are a responsible way that we should walk, your belief dictates your behavior. I'm just using that as an example. I'm not showing you my cards and telling you what you should believe and what you shouldn't believe. Many of you want that. And I've had lots of conversations about that, really a lot. And so I'm more than happy to uh, walk with you through that and help you see biblical information that can inform your decision. But I won't tell you what to believe in regard to that. I'm making the point here, not very well though, but I'm making the point here that your beliefs lead to certain behaviors. 
Let me think about a less touchy subject. Uh, (laughs) um, Let's say that your ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church, your ecclesiology says that a church, uh, to be a part of a church, a person has to, a church service should be filled with people speaking in tongues. Um, Or it should have um, um, a time of healing where people come forward and are healed of their diseases or something like that. If you believe that, um, then you'll come to a church like this and be disappointed because no one stands up and speaks in tongues and no one is interpreting and no one is falling over. And so you understand if you, your behavior is, is not um, leading you, your behavior is a result of what you believe, your doctrine. That's ever the more reason to be careful about what you believe uh, and what you understand. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right belief leads to right behavior. So we want to start with what the Bible says, not your experience, not my experience, not your tradition, not my tradition, not denominationalism, not feelings. Some people think that if they come into a worship service, the song should make me have goosebumps, and if I don't really cry, then it's not real worship. Or if, if the, the teacher doesn't um, uh, share enough funny stories or something like that, that it's not real sermons. Or there's a variety of ways in which we, we evaluate our church experience, not by doctrine, but by our feelings or by our past cultural um, experiences. And maybe a helpful illustration that I've uh, used in the past is... Um, um, if you imagine your, uh, your life being driven down something like uh, uh, railroad tracks, imagine with me that this is a, uh, a train. <laughs> I'm not the best artist, but imagine with me that this is a, a train and it's running down these tracks, um, which are, you know, your, your life. Um, and then, you know, shortly followed behind that is a boxcar. And, uh, and shortly following behind that is, uh, is the caboose. Um, if, if this is kind of your life, um, what we want to drive the train is truth. And what we want as a result of that are feelings. Those sort of come last, but um, our behavior in response to the truth leads to feelings. Can everybody see this okay? It's not even a good enough drawing. I mean, to be honest with you. You're not missing anything if you can't see it. Um, the only day that I have a blackboard, Andrew spent like painstaking time to like completely do the whole board. So I'm trying not to mess up his whole thing here. Um, but this, this I've, I've used this in counseling for years. Somebody used it for me. It's not something I came up with, but, but truth being what drives the train rather than your feelings driving So many people flip this and your feelings drive you. Do you understand? If you feel um, angry about something, then your behavior follows that feeling and then truth may just lag somewhere way far behind. You may be angry at something that isn't even true. I mean, how many times have you assumed something from somebody's facial expression and just thought that they were, oh, I don't know what I did. I must have done something because, you know, and so you feel something and your behavior responds to it and what, it may not even be based in truth at all. Philippians says, think about true things, dwell on true things. So we use this 
Bible as our truth, our source of truth. And then in the process, our behavior is shaped from that. Uh, and then feelings may or may not catch up to that at all. You may never feel like coming in here and worshiping. Sometimes people, you know, you, you get in a fight with your spouse or with your kids or somebody on the way and, and you walk in here and the first thing you do is smile. Eh, God is good and everything's great. And, and yet inside you're still kind of in turmoil or something's churned up or maybe you had a week of doubt and struggle. And, and so you're coming in here and you don't feel like worshiping, but you have to acknowledge the truth is that God is worthy to be worshiped, whether you feel it or not. And so then you behave a certain way by giving a sacrifice of praise, acknowledging the truth of who he is. And eventually, that's why we do two or three songs before we kind of get into this, because you're allowing your, your heart to catch up with what's true. You understand this? This principle is just as important with um, uh, forming any doctrine, uh, such as the one that we're talking about today, our understanding of church. So let's get into uh, the scripture, and we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and, um, and then we're going to break into, uh, like I said, a few weeks just to understand what church is and what does it mean to be a part of a church. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 9 and go through 11. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So Peter describes us as sojourners and exiles. What's a sojourner? Um, You've seen people that are like through hikers on the Appalachian Trail that are just constantly hiking or backpacking. They don't live on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, they're just sojourning. Abraham was a sojourner. He, he was traveling from his homeland uh, to the place where God would eventually lead him, but he never really had a home. Scripture describes you, Christ follower, as a sojourner. This world is not your home. Um, you are an exile from the world, and you belong to your citizen of another country. He also says that we're a chosen race, meaning that God has chosen us to be uh, part of his family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11 um, goes back and forth between identity and function. Identity and function. That is who you are and what you do. Who you are and what you do. And in the same way that truth should drive the train, identity should inform who you are uh, as a child of God. And so it's important for us to fill our mind with truth on those parts. Um, uh, Peter also describes our uh, purpose that we have, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Um, we are here for God's glory and for God's message. And so it informs our uh, behavior and our function as well as our identity. So this is going to be um, an anchoring passage for us, but we're going to look at other passages as well. Um, Let's, let's jump back into, well, let me just tell this story first. This might be a better way to, to go about it. 
Uh, I was at a conference last week, and, uh, and as, as is common in conferences, I heard from a lot of different speakers, and went to a lot of different breakouts. And this one particular breakout I went to, uh, there was a guy who was speaking, very good, uh, very, very good speaker, uh, immediately identified with him, very humble, um, uh, very uh, kind, gracious, and, and honest in his assessments of his own life. And uh, it, just, it was appealing to hear uh, him speak. And he's a pastor of a large church, maybe uh, 3,000 members, maybe 2,000 members. And uh, as he was just describing his experience over the last uh, couple of years, um, he said, the spirit sort of impressed upon me that I had um, a sinful, unhealthy um, metric where I, th- I gauged my success by the, n- the number of people in our church. And so I was really convicted about that. And then of course, during COVID, we didn't meet for his particular church, 14 months. And he said that then when they started to come back together, there were just um, a fraction of the people who were coming before that were coming after. And, and so it, it allowed him to, to change his metrics to say, what is it that a Christ follower is and what is it that a Christ follower does when they gather in the church? And he came up with something like eight metrics. Uh, Something, I don't know what his eight metrics were. There was something like attending a small group, participating in prayer groups, um, serving within the church, uh, participating through giving and voting, attending, discipleship missions. Um, they had eight metrics that were specific to them from Scripture about what they thought a believer is and does and functions within a church. So what he found out when, is when they evaluated these eight metrics and they took all these 3,000 people in their church, they found that there was only one guy who did all eight metrics. And he was a staff member. And when they, they pointed to him, it was like, you're the only guy doing all this stuff. He's like, I only kind of do three of those because I have to. Like, it's not even, you know, it's not even like pure love for Jesus that is driving me to, to fulfill all this checklist of what you say I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, maybe um, 30 people were meeting five of those metrics. Um, and he said the vast majority uh, were not 300 people met three or four of those metrics, only 300 people. And so his, in his own assessment, he said, we were a church of two to 300 and we had 2,500 fans, people who just liked our music, people who liked our facilities, people who liked our programs, but, but who weren't really following Jesus and weren't really committed to the word and, and weren't really responding well to trials and difficulties that weren't equipped for all these things. So those metrics kind of helped him understand his uh, understanding of what a church is and does. And so with that in mind, what would we do? How would we regard what is a church and what does it mean to be a Christ follower? And what does it mean for you scripturally to be a participating member of the body of Christ. What does that look like? Well, that's what we want to answer in the next couple of weeks. Um, Let's start here. Um, A lot of the notes that I'm going to give you are from my Systematic Theology 3 class with Dr. Greg Allison. We just grabbed that book right there, that white one. Um, This is the book that um, I went through in um, Systematic Theology 3, written by my professor, Greg Allison, um, I'm condensing this into a week or two, so you're welcome. Um, it's a really good book, uh, a fantastic book, actually. And uh, before it was written and published, um, he just was allowing us to experience the manuscript as it was being edited. It's very helpful to get into his mind, and it was an eight-week 
a nine-week class that I took in um, in Manhattan at a Friday night, Saturday um, extension center that was uh, maybe in 2009 or 2010. But it was so helpful that I want to share with you some of the cliff notes uh, as we get into what this is. So I think I even made, yeah, there it is. I even have a PowerPoint here slide. Let's get to um, Ecclesia, maybe the third slide there. All right, Ecclesia. This is the word church. If you're reading in the Greek New Testament or a Greek ma- uh, manuscript, you would come across this little word Ecclesia, and that's translated in our English versions as church. This is as good a spot as any to, to uh, start with our understanding of what church is. The actual word church, Ecclesia, is a compound word of ek and kaleo. Ek is out of. It's just a prefix that goes on words to describe being out of something. Kaleo means to, to be called. So the word ek, kaleo, ecclesia, is to be called out of something. It's to be called out of something. And in the New Testament, and, and also in, in the Roman world, in Greek language, it, it wasn't just used to describe churches. Um, in some places, uh, I think in, um, in Acts 19, 39, uh, there was a convening of citizens that were just gathered to discuss legal civic issues. And it was called an ecclesia. So it doesn't always mean church in the way that we understand church. Sometimes it just means an assembly of people. Uh, we went to a middle school ecclesia, right? A middle school assembly, and the guy stood up and he did some magic tricks or something, and he told you not to use drugs or whatever that it was, or how to be a leader or how to, right? Anybody remember those middle school assemblies? That was technically an ecclesia. It was a gathering. It was an assembly. It was a group of people that came out um, of something for something. And so Paul adopts this language and applies it to the church as a people who are called out of something. So here's a great reference point for you to even change your language. The church is people. It's not a building. We're not at the church right now. The church gathers in this building. Um, When we leave, the Holy Spirit does not reside here. This building is not holy. There's nothing magical about being here than you being somewhere else. This building is where the church gathers. Our sign uses that language on purpose. Ridgeline Community Church gathering Sundays at 1015. What does that communicate? That the church is people and the people that make up the church gather here. This building is not holy. It's not, it doesn't have a glow around. It's not protected by angels or something when we leave. It's just the place where we gather. God didn't call this building out of a culture. (laughs) He called you out of darkness to walk in light. And the gathering of called out ones, He calls the church a royal priesthood. He calls a holy nation. He calls uh, my body. And He calls my bride. There are all these words that use, but it describes people. People. Um, when all those people are gathered in one place, it's described as the local church, Acts eleven twenty six. Barnabas and Paul uh, met with the church in Antioch. That's the ecclesia. First um, Corinthians fifteen nine. Paul says that he had persecuted the ecclesia, the called out people of God. Paul wasn't persecuting buildings. He wasn't desecrating a facility. When Ridgeline and Rock Hill merged together, um, the first week we merged, I mean, brand new, first week, 
Somebody scribbled with black Sharpie marker, satanic graffiti all over the foyer out there. Demonic, satanic, 666, and Satan rules, and all these kinds of crazy messages. I have all these pictures of it. Just everywhere we could find, we saw a little thing. They didn't desecrate the church. Just, this is, they desecrated a building where the church gathers. Is that, is that distinction clear for you? A way that you can change your language is uh, in your, when you're in the car, when you're talking to your kids, or when you're talking to your spouse, or, or whoever, your, yourself, whatever you talk to. Um, don't say we're going to the church, just saying we're going to the building where the church meets. That's, that little precise distinction will help you remember that the church is people. People matter more than this facility does. You matter more than this building I'm not asking you to do this, but if you pour coffee out, you know, in defiance all over the floor here, I'm going to ultimately love you, not the floor, not the building. There's nothing sacred. Uh, I was disturbed when somebody satanically graffitied everywhere, but I was more concerned about that person's soul than I was about our facility. We're not trying to preserve a building here. And if you're building-oriented toward a church, then you're not identifying with the worldwide body of Christ. Many who gather in secrecy in fields around fire pits and in basements and in you know, the uh, early church gathered in the catacombs in France um, because it was illegal for Christians to worship at that time. And so the church is not this place. The church is us and wherever we gather. That means your small group is technically a church. Two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus and, and you're a called out group of people. All right, I think I've belabored that point. Are you clear on that? So if the church's people called out by God and assembled in local expressions, what we want to get to the heart of that is what animates the people who are called out and assembled. What, what gives us life? What, what gives us purpose and direction? Why are we actually here? I know some of you ask that all the time. Why am I here? I don't know why I'm here. But, but what is it that brings us forward? What distinguishes us from any other civic organization? Well, let me give you a, a working definition here. I didn't realize that was going to be so small. I apologize. Um, but we're going to get to this next week as well. The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel. And the church is made up of believers. And so we affirm a regenerate church membership. This was controversial when... Uh, People in the 1700s began to come from Europe into America because they were a part of religious systems and they thought that as soon as they got here, that their membership should transfer and that they should just be members of the church because they were from their parents, their grandparents, etc. And so there was what was called fencing the table or other means by which they made sure that there was a regenerate church membership. You couldn't just belong to this club because it wasn't a club. It was a church made up of those who had repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. So the church is made up of redeemed people, redeemed people who have understood the gospel and received Jesus by faith and repented of their sins. The church is the people of God have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It consists of two interrelated elements, the universal church and the local church. So let's start with the universal church. 
I think you have an understanding of the universal church. The universal church is the fellowship of all Christians that extends from the day of Pentecost until the second coming, incorporating both the deceased believers who are presently in heaven. They're a part of the church. Gone before us. Still worshiping, still part of the Eka Kaleo, those who are called out, redeemed in Christ. So the universal church is all believers of all time, um, gathered together, whether living or um, uh, presently in heaven, and then the living believers from all over the world. You are a part of a massive group of people, the body of Christ. This is just one small local expression of the universal church. We're going to get to the local church in a second, but it's important for you to understand that you're a part of the big C church. In the Apostles' Creed, uh, it described it as the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic meaning um, universal church or uh, not the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. That came later on, um, in many centuries later. But when the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed was penned, um, it was described as one Catholic church, one universal church. That's made up of all the believers of all time. So let's get into the local church. The local church is when the universal church manifests itself in local gatherings that have some characteristics, right? Um, these are the characteristics of a local church. It's doxological, logocentric, pneumodynamic, covenantal, confessional, missional, spatiotemporal, eschatological. I don't think I need to explain any of those, right? We're all good. Right? I'm just kidding. The next two weeks, this is kind of what we're going to unpack. Because the local church, this particular expression of the body of Christ, and the, the expression of the body of Christ uh, meeting over in Telford right now, and the expression of the body of Christ meeting in Franconia, and in Souderton, and in Percocet, and in Sellersville, and Lansdale, and all around us, the dozens, the dozens of churches that are local we don't have anything up on them or down on them. It's not a competition between them. We all make up what is the universal church as we meet these sort of qualifications of biblically what is a church. So let's unpack this a little bit. The local church is doxological. Doxological. That's a, um, a simple word that just means it is oriented toward the glory of God. It is oriented toward worship. Everything that was created was created for the glory of God so that all things should be oriented toward the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim its faithfulness. Psalm 29 describes angels are ordered to give glory to God. Psalm 8.5, humans are crowned with glory to give to God. Even our definition of sin, Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and we fall short of what? The glory of God. The glory of God is what orients the church. The church should be characterized by giving God glory. Now you see right away there, this confronts our behaviors and our culture because we come to a church building, uh, strike one, right? That's messed up there. And then we come in and we say, I didn't like that song, so I didn't sing because it's, the church should orient around my preference or they didn't stand when they read the word of God, so I didn't really like that church. Like, we have all these 
sort of grading points of what we like about the church, what we don't like about our church, what we appreciate about that church, but not about this church, as though the church were oriented toward your preferences. Like a grocery store. I go to this place because they have these prices, or I go to this place because it has this brand and not that brand. Or, you know, we, we sort of view the church in that way as though it were oriented toward us. And so right away, our, our discomfort and our behaviors and our attitude toward the church or toward God, it automatically, our sinful heart pulls like a car out of alignment, right? It's always trying to pull left or right, meaning I, I didn't like that song, so I just didn't sing. Uh, that, that reveals something about what you think church is for. I didn't, there wasn't enough smoke machine coming up and, and there wasn't like a laser light thing. And I don't really like that vocalist, so I didn't really sing. Or, or the way that person plays guitar, just, I don't know, it's kind of a distraction to me. Um, I remember when I first um, encountered this, a guy said, I don't know why we have to sing that trash on the wall. We used to sing out of a book. And I just thought, What's, what are you talking about? It's just the mode for lyrics. <laughs> it's not, well, who cares if it's on the wall? Why is it trash on the wall, but in, a, in the hymn book, the same lyrics are somehow beautiful? You see how we can get disoriented when we, when we think the church is for us and our preferences, and then when the church doesn't meet our preferences or understanding, we, we just want to move on to somewhere that fits us or that we like better or something like that, as though God was designing the church just to cater to tastes and appetites. It's doxological, meaning it's oriented for the glory of God. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church. And it's not just any glory, it has to be right glory, because it's possible for us to engage in false glory giving and idol worship in our age. We can set up these icons and idols and attribute or ascribe to them glory. There used to be a really pretty mosaic cross on this wall over here. And it was born out of this really great sermon series where people brought pottery and it was broken. And while the message I think was given, uh, somebody was assembling the broken pieces of people's lives. This beautiful metaphor put together in a beautiful cross. And it was a very powerful sermon illustration. Um, and then when there was a merger, there was, uh, you know, there was just a blending of two churches and, and things just got moved and things got taken. And, and there was, you know, mild frustration. And I, it's completely understandable when you try to blend different cultures and people and groups, but, but this particular cross irked people to the degree that one person told me that he was leaving because he had infused so much meaning to that that he couldn't stand to worship here because that cross was no longer visible. I mean, we have it, but because of that conversation, I'm terrified to bring it out of the hidden location where it is. You may find it, and I don't know, some people may go down there and, and kind of kneel to it every once in a while. I don't know, but it's, it's here somewhere. But, but our hearts want to attach meaning and glory and value to a thing when God calls that idolatry, and he wants us to attach and ascribe value and glory to himself. 
but we quickly attach ourselves to a form of worship or to something that um, holds value or meaning to us. You keep little trinkets for some reason, right? Your drawers are full of things that you have an emotional attachment to. Every once in a while, it's good just to throw that stuff away. Now, just a purge of, of those kind of things. Because our hearts want to ascribe value to things. Uh, and if we're not careful, it can be false glory. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee from idolatry. And idolatry is subtle and it's sneaky. Augustine said that our hearts are idol factories. In 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, Paul warns them that they were headed toward idolatry, forsaking sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. What are some of the things that we idolize in church today? Let's just pretend like this is a small group. Call out some things that we idolize in a church today. All right, yeah, that's a good one. Kind of make an idol out of a connection to people in a, in, in a social media setting. What's another thing that we idolize in, in a church? Yeah, music styles. In music styles, we'll, we'll, we'll become enamored with one style of, of worship songs. What's another? Uh, architecture, for sure. The building. Uh, money. The size of a church. Isn't that a big one? A church gets more value if there's a thousand people coming on a Sunday and a church that is small like our church, people might not think it's such a great church because we value size, quantity, not quality. We value leaders. Uh, We idolize, um, you know, I hear all the time, did you hear so-and-so's sermon? I get his podcast and I listen to it every week. We, we idolize sort of cultural Christian heroes and we, we put them on a pedestal. Innovation, something new rather than something old. If something is, uh, is innovative and dynamic, we, we tend to idolize that. Um, nationalism, politics, a particular church that might be more patriotic or nationalistic in its expression. Programs, churches can, can idolize programs. Whatever we do, we'll never cancel that particular program. And so we can build these idols even in the church today. Well, that's, that's doxological. Doxological is that we are to uh, actively fight against that tendency in our own heart to worship something else in the church. And we're constantly trying to monitor our hearts. Am I orienting my heart toward the glory of God and to worship him because he's worthy to be worshiped. Truth drives the train and, and feelings follow somewhat later, but we can worship because he's worthy to be worshiped and adored regardless of how we think or feel. Let's get to the second one. The second one is logocentric. Logocentricity has two aspects, the word of God being Jesus and the word of God being scripture. When the church gathers, we gather in a, in a, in a way in which we're, we're um, gathering around. If you imagine a fire pit and, and uh, on a Friday night, you're gathering with friends and, and you come and, and everybody orients their chairs around, um, not a person, but around um, a fire pit. And, and that place kind of gives off light and it gives off warmth. That's the two aspects that the church gathers around. We gather around the person of Jesus Christ. That's the logos. 
Uh, John 1, the word was made flesh um, and the, the, the word dwelt among us. It's using that word logos as Jesus. The word, logos means word. Um, Jesus is the word. And so we, we gather around Jesus. The church is to be centered on Jesus. It is his church, right? Jesus is the head of the church. He's the good shepherd. Ephesians 2.20 uh, says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, which emphasizes the centrality of Jesus. What's a cornerstone? Right? If you're building a building, somebody sets the cornerstone and the entire building is built from that. It gives it its direction and its foundation, and it's a central point. Jesus is the center point. Coincidentally, our logo is designed to look like a building um, and has two aspects. It's designed to be like a building with the red square being Christ, the cornerstone in the bottom right hand of our, of our logo. Um, and so we are, we are acknowledging that Jesus is the cornerstone and the head of the church. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, he's the head of the church, which is his body. So we gather around Jesus. He's the redeemer of the church. Uh, he calls the church his body. He calls the church his bride. And so you can't be a part of the church if you're not connected to the body. And you can't be a, a married to the groom um, if you're not a part of his uh, if you're not part of his bride, right? So it, this um, lends to a, a regenerate church membership. Why would you want to be a part of a church or a member of a church if you're not in Christ? Make sense? So we're, we're gathered around Jesus. Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them describing the church. Uh, the second aspect is, of logocentricity is that we're gathering around inspired scripture. We understand that this book is inspired by God. It's a divine product by God, that it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we acknowledge that the word of God is sufficient. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't tell you everything you want to know about everything because I, I, sometimes I'm like, what does it say about dinosaurs in here? Or what does it say about aliens? Like, I just want to know kind of things that it doesn't touch on sometimes in different moments, you know, in, 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 my, in my week. Uh, and, and where the Bible is silent, I understand that it's not because God doesn't know about it. It's just that this is sufficient. It's just enough so that we may have faith and walk by faith in God and in Christ alone. It is sufficient. Everything we need to know in order to please God as followers of Jesus Christ, it is not only sufficient, but it is closed. There is no more revelation that will be added to this. Uh, this is why I particularly, um, and you've heard this kind of stump rant that I've given before. I particularly struggle with um, Jesus calling the devotional. I, and listen, I don't hate you if you use Jesus calling every day. All right. But I just have a, I have a problem with it. It was birthed out of a new age activity in the 1930s of sort of um, what was described as spirit writing, basically opening yourself up to spirits and just allowing yourself to write often done in a trance 
This is where the Enneagram also came from. Sort of trance-like writing from a guy in Bolivia that came up with these sort of Gnostic codes. There's just a number, but they pack meaning into it that was revealed to them by spirits. Um, even the woman who wrote Jesus Calling, it's, uh, she would go out and where scripture didn't speak, she would take an extra 15 minutes to ask, what would you say to me if you were here now that's not in your word? And write down those messages. And through, it went through like 25 revisions. Like, why would you have to revise it if Jesus was speaking it to you, if it was making corrections? But it had to make all these corrections and edits because earlier versions contradicted things that Jesus actually said. <laughs> well, that's bad. That's bad stuff. So we understand that this is sufficient and it's whole and complete and we don't add to it. We don't need an extra revelation or a Gnostic experience. Gnosticism isn't just the denial of flesh and physical stuff being bad and, and um, making spirit good. Gnosticism also uh, really is one of its functional foundational tenets is secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. There's things that were revealed to me by a spirit. Listen, I'm pre-preaching Galatians a little bit. We're going to get into it because he's going to say, if an angel from heaven revealed to you Another gospel, let that person be accursed. So the introduction of a spiritual realm of new knowledge, we understand that scripture is sufficient. That's why I try to read the words just as they're written. It's clear. It's necessary. It's truthful and inerrant. It's authoritative. To obey the word of God is to obey God himself. To disobey the word of God is to disobey God himself and to trust the word of God is to trust God himself. That's the authority that he ascribes to it. I have people in the community say, how do I get God's blessing? And one of the ways I describe it is by being obedient to the revealed word. Ah, but I don't, I don't like what it says about this or that. And I say, well, it's not, a, it's not who am I to change it? I mean, it's not my place to change it so that you can... People who are actively disobedient to the word of God don't experience the favor and blessing of God when they're willfully, consciously violating scripture. I had a couple that wanted me to do a wedding for them. And I said, why? And they said, well, because um, I want God's favor on it. And, and it was in a, a marriage uh, situation where uh, one claimed to be a believer and the other claimed to not be a believer at all, but actually rejected it. And I, I just took him right over to 1 Corinthians 6 and says, um, and it says very clearly, um, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, whom God has given you. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, what union does Christ have with Belial? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her because the two become one flesh? Um, what does Christ have to do with Belial? Uh, what is the joining of a believer with an unbeliever? That whole passage describes really clearly that it is not a union that could be blessed by God if two people go into it willingly, pulling in two different directions. Um, we understand that the blessing to be obedient to God is to be concurrently obedient to his word as well. 
Well, we also understand Scripture is effective, it's productive, it accomplishes things. Then Scripture says that um, by hearing the Word of God in Romans 10, how shall they believe if they don't hear? And how shall they hear if they're not sent? We speak the Word of God in that way. Well, those are just a couple of them. Um, we're going to get to the rest next week. Um, but these first two, doxological and logocentric, uh, I want us to cover um, let's go to the next slide, and then next week we'll double back around. And let's just finish our definition and, and description of the church. Um, the church that has those qualities in it, covenantal, confessional, missional, etc., those churches are led by pastors, scripturally. They're also called elders, overseers, or shepherds. Those are all um, interchangeable words um, in the New Testament. Served by deacons. And those churches possess and pursue purity and unity, exercise church discipline, develop strong connections with other churches, and celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, equipped by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts for ministry. And these communities regularly gather to worship the triune God, proclaim His Word, engage non-believers with the gospel, disciple the members, and care for people through prayer and giving, and stand both for and against the world. Well, this is the definition that we're going to work through over the next few weeks in our understanding of what a church is and does. But already you can see that some of our understandings of what a church is don't fit this description. We're not a civic club. This doesn't provide any status for you. If you go out into the community and say, I'm a part of this church, no one's going to be, ooh. Like, they're not going to, not, there's no outward benefit to you to belong to this particular group because we're not a civic club. We're not a social club. It's not designed to help you find your best friends. And it's not designed to help you find friends for your kids. Um, and if you leave a church for those purposes, it reveals a misunderstanding of what the church is. It's, it's not a social place, although that's a benefit that God might provide within a body of believers. It's not the purpose for us to gather. It's not a place to hear inspirational music and life tips to help you make the most of your best life, right? It's not what the church is. It's not a place that only wants or needs your money, right? Um, when we were just planting uh, for years, we were supported by a dozen other churches and individuals around the country. And it blew that notion up to any skeptic who came and said, the church just wants our money. And so well, we don't want or need your money. Not only that, but is there anything we can provide for you financially? And we often support people through the generosity of others within a church. The church is not a community organization or a social justice organization or a political action organization. I had an awkward conversation um, with our neighbor here because I know of maybe 10 families who have not attended our church from the community who may or may not be lost because they drove by and they saw these signs along the highway or along the road here and assumed that this was our church property and that we were the ones putting up those signs and said, I, I'm not interested in a political organization. And I've had to go over and over again. I need you to help me with that. 
to understand that that's this, our property ends right outside this window and that that Trump sign is not ours. And coincidentally, the Biden signs by our sign out on state road, those weren't ours either. As a body of believers, we understand this world is not our home. I'm not going to, I am not a patriot first and a believer down later, or those two aren't the same. God should be able to lift you out of any nation and place you anywhere in the world and your allegiance should remain to Christ alone. We get that mixed up. We want to blend patriotism. How many of you remember when the church used to have an American flag on the stage and a Christian flag on the stage and patriotism and Americana and the gospel were syncretistic? Syncretism is a terrible thing when you try to add something to the gospel. So we're not a community organization or a social justice organization or a political action organization. I purposely don't tell you my personal political beliefs or how you should vote or anything like that. I just try to make our message simple. We preach Christ alone from scripture alone. And we don't want to mix the message with anything else. Um, and finally, we're not a reli- this is not a religious ritual that earns you some favor with God. Let me close with this. I know I went for a while, but I didn't cover all those things. So I'm going to try to help you out here. Um, let's understand what the church is from a scriptural point of view. But let's also understand what it, what it is to a lost person in, in the community who might want to come here. Because this will help you. Sometimes we forget what it's like to, um, to have addictions and to be outside of Christ and then to stumble into a church looking for something. Uh, as, a, as a lost kid, I had a lot of troubles and a lot of problems. And so I visited a church because I thought maybe they have an answer. And when I went in, a guy, I found my best shirt. It was a button up. Uh, I mean, but it was super wrinkly. And a guy just said, hey, did you sleep in your shirt last night? <laughs> but he was just so overwhelmed by the fact that I wouldn't iron my shirt to show up for church that he, he said something like that to me. People do that all the time. I occasionally hear someone visiting our church, someone else says something to them about an outward appearance or about the way they're dressed or maybe the word that slips out of their mouth. Listen, I want to kind of help you see the flip side that that the love of Christ compels us to show grace and mercy and to meet people where they are. If a lost person comes into this place and they use language that you're not particularly comfortable with and you feel the need to object or talk about the way they're dressed or tell them they're not welcome here because of an outward behavior, you and I won't be friends for a while, okay? I just want you to know I I won't be happy. Won't be happy because Jesus wants to meet people where they are. And to a lost person visiting a church, the church represents a place for hope. They've tried everything else. They've been everywhere else and, and they're thinking, maybe here I'll find love and acceptance and truth. So this represents hope. Somebody might hear, be here today that doesn't, isn't a believer in Christ and, and they've had enough of COVID and the world and the politics and all the crazy stuff that's happened over the last few years and they came here hoping to hear about Jesus. Man, I blew it. I talked about the church for two hours. And, you know, but, but they came here looking for hope. And if they don't see it in your life and if they don't hear it from your lips, 
we miss the opportunity that we have to represent the hope that they came seeking and the answers found in the good news about Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to talk more about this. We're going to talk more about what is, um, what is the church. We'll go through the rest of those definitions. But, but today, for today, think about this. What notion of the church that you examined, that you've had it off a little bit? Where is it that you feel like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize it. What adjustments do you need to make in your understanding to, to allow truth to drive you here why you come, what's motivating you to be here and to be a part of a, a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for the word and for the opportunity to gather, to hear your word, but also the opportunity to gather um, around the word Jesus Christ, around him as the the savior of the church, the one who purchased her on the cross, Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus, you are building us and preparing us for a wedding, a wedding to you. And so we, as your bride, are in heightened anticipation. We, we, we say, come Lord Jesus, come, because we, we, are, um, we, grow, we grow weary of this world. We grow weary in a place where we shouldn't feel at home. Lord Jesus, forgive us if we feel perfectly at home in this culture. What an indictment against where our heart should be. Help us to be less and less enamored with the world and more and more enamored with who you are. Let us place our longing and our heart and our affection on you and on the coming kingdom. And let this be an outpost that reflects that, that we would not look like the world, but that we would look like a community of people who are waiting for a person. We thank you for the chance to gather this morning and we pray that you would teach us and we give to you our worship in Jesus name. Amen. Mm-hmm.